For me, one of the most beautiful descriptions of who Jesus is for us Christians is formulated by a friend of mine, a theologian, John Cobb. Jesus is the way that is open to other ways. Jesus is the way, for me, the way that is open to other ways. I think that, that for me kind of describes how Jesus has enriched my life, given me a grounding, an ability to experience a God of love and a God of justice, but at the same time called me to be open, critically open, not just, you know, empty-mindedly um, open, critically open, but genuinely open to other, to other ways, to other, other, other religions. So I think most people, you know, as they get out of, you know, high school or college and they begin life and they find out, like me, that religion doesn't really fit into that tight box. And if you're also like me, as you begin to work through faith and work through everything about faith, you realize that there's a lot of truth in other faiths. And I mean, I touched on this briefly, you know, a few weeks ago when I spoke with Barbara Brown Taylor, but I am falling in love with, I just want to be real clear, love Jesus. And I, I don't know that I will ever not be a Christian, but that doesn't mean that there isn't things in faith that are as equally true or as equally beautiful that are not my own. Uh, faiths that I'm not familiar with, but they need to be wrestled with. And so that's what this conversation is about. If you do not know who Paul Knitter is, I didn't either. So he was recommended to me by one of the supporters of the show on Patreon. Uh, and so Paul, other Paul, if you're listening, thank you so much. Uh, and to each of the Patreon supporters, a lot of the last probably month or so of interviews have come from recommendations from that community. And so just a small aside, if you haven't yet thought about becoming a, a supporter of the show, do that because your voice has weight and you are amongst the most engaged listeners of the show. And I am humbled by those of you that take the time uh, to support the show in any way possible. But back to Paul Knitter. Paul wrote a book called Without Buddha, I Could Not Be a Christian. And I wasn't sure what to expect. You know, as, as Paul and I talked, uh, both Pauls and I talked, there, there came a point, and you'll hear it later in the conversation, I still haven't finished the book because I can't get past a chapter. There's a wall I keep coming up against in chapter five over and over again. And I should probably just listen to the advice that you'll hear later from Paul on that wall. And so thank you for being here. Let me know your thoughts on this episode. Shoot me a tweet hit me up on Facebook, share the show and say something about it. Uh, shoot me an email, find all those avenues to do that at can I say this at church.com. Really hope that you enjoy this conversation. Here we are. Paul F. Knitter. I really enjoyed over the last few weeks reading Without Buddha, I Could Not Be a Christian. And then I began to realize that you have other things that I've never read as well. And then um, 
a mutual friend also named Paul put us into communication. And so Paul, if you're listening, and I'm going to assume that you are, thanks for referring me, but thank you so much for being on the show, Paul. I'm glad you're here. I'm delighted to be here, Seth. So your story is different than most most intellectuals or most theologians. Your story is a bit different. You, you've been in multiple circles, multiple, you've had multiple influences in your faith. And so I wonder for those listening, if you could quickly kind of bring us up to speed on the high points of what has made you I guess the Christian that you are today. Yeah. Okay. As 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 briefly and as clearly as possible, <laughs> Seth. I think it. Uh, well, I was brought up. I was brought up in Chicago, in a traditional, um, middle class Roman Catholic family, um, which meant my parents took their 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 faith seriously, but they were not uh, in, they were not inquirers. I mean, they, it was basically you go to church on Sunday, and they sent us to Catholic schools anyway. Out of eighth grade, I had the unexpected invitation to consider going to what was called then a minor or high school seminary to begin the long process of becoming a Roman Catholic priest. So out of eighth grade, I went into the seminary. Hmm. It was a religious order called the Society of the Divine Word or Divine Word Missionaries. I wanted to become a missionary. And my motivation was that I felt that if I really loved these people in other religions, I had to convert them. Now, we're talking, this is back in 19, <laughs> 1952, a mm -hmm. long time ago. Um, but if I really loved them, I had to convert them because otherwise their chances for eternal salvation were pretty well nil. And so I went, I began the process, and it was a 14-year process up to ordination. And in that, during the course of those years, I started also to study these other religions. And I began to wonder about them because I saw what seemed to be a lot of really neat, interesting, if not really good things in these other religions. Well, in the midst of those kind of questions, I had one of the most, one of the greatest gifts that God has given me in my life. I was chosen, this was in, now in 1962, 10 years later, to go and finish the last four years of my, my seminary studies, the four years of theological studies, in Rome, Italy, at the Gregorian University, hmm. kind of one of the primary Catholic universities in the world, which was a, a privilege in itself. But, but I just landed in Rome in September of 19, end of, end of September 1962, and two weeks later, on October 11th, the Second Vatican Council began. Mm -hmm. So I ended up being in Rome for the years of the council. And not only that, but I was studying at a, at, a, at a collegio, a house of studies, where we had about 24 bishops, from missionary bishops from around the world, who were there for the council. And so we, we seminarians talked with these bishops every day. In fact, a lot of them could no longer read or understand Latin, and all of their homework from the council were, was in Latin. So we sent a seminarian translated for them. And that was part of my theological education, reading all these sub secreto documents, confidential documents. Anyway, but that was at a moment when I was struggling with how to understand other religions. And then my Roman Catholic Church, not known to be a especially progressive church, um, I, I don't have to point that out, did, did make a declaration called, Nos, uh, Latin name is Nostra Etate, 
uh, the attitude of the Catholic Church towards other religions in which it said that we should be ready to, to, to look for and experience, see God in other religions. Mm. This was tremendous. This yeah. was revolutionary. I never would have never dreamed this. So anyway, that opened up my interest to pursue the study of other religions and to promote a dialogue with other religions. And that's what was the topic of my, of my doctoral dissertation, which I did. I had the privilege of then going to Germany to finish my studies and studying under uh, Karl Rahner, mm. one of the um, best-known Roman Catholic theologians. Yeah. So, so and, and since then, my, my efforts have been to, to, to carry out the instructions of, of the Second Vatican Council, we Catholics are known to be very obedient, and the council said, you should dialogue with other <laughs> religions, so I took that seriously. And, um, and it, it, it gradually developed how to understand Christianity, my own faith, in the light of what I believe God is doing in other religions. And as I, I, I and I'm almost finished here, I don't want to make this too long, long-winded, but as I developed in, in, in the effort to promote dialogue among religions, the religion that attracted me more and more, and I don't, can't explain why, was Buddhism. Right. And so I began to teach. I was now teaching at Xavier University in Cincinnati, Ohio. I had, by the way, I should add this. I was ordained a priest in 1966 in Rome, but um, um, it was in 1972 when I returned to the United States, having finished my doctorate, that I knew I had to make up my mind whether I wanted to stay in the active ministry. And in 1975, I received permission from the Vatican to leave the priesthood, the active priesthood, but to carry on as a theologian. So anyway, so but but Buddhism became the religion that 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 more and more engaged me, and I began to teach courses on Buddhism. I began to find a Buddhist teachers and to start doing Buddhist meditation, and gradually I realized that Buddhism was helping me understand my own Christian faith more deeply. Yeah. Uh, it was my, my friendship with Buddhism was deepening my, my friendship with and commitment to Jesus, Jesus Christ. And I just was kind of, what's going on? And so I did what theologians generally do when they have a question. I wrote a book and uh, <laughs> tried to explain why, um, figure out for myself and for my fellow Christians, yeah. because I want to make sure what, what I understand to be my Christian faith can resonate at, at least with some other Christians. Mm -hmm. No Christian can be a loner. Christians are Christians within a community, yeah. within a church. And so I wanted. I wrote this book to see if uh, other Christians, uh, if this made sense for other Christians. And um, and I must say, it's 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 been um, a book that has uh, really in, enabled me to be engaged with other Christians on on this conversation. And here we are doing it again with you. And I'm so happy to be here. I am as well. And, I'm, and again, thank you for being here. I want to tie up some of those loose ends, just because the organized organized part of my brain doesn't like that. So how? How is it that you became chosen at such a young age? Because eighth grade, that's like, what, 12, 13 years old? And then you would have been going to Rome when you were 21. And I'm assuming that the math checks out there. If it doesn't, yep, yep, that's fine. That's it. Um, that's it. So is that like academic based? Is that they're watching you pray and being like, this guy's got something here? Or is it the questions that you're asking the, 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 the teachers that you're being instructed from? Like, How does that even happen? Well, I mean, when I, the decision to leave, 
Seth, I left home when I was 12 years old, mm. something I would never advise other young boys or girls to do. But I left home practically and went to this minor seminary, boarding seminary, and I left home. Came home for Christmas and for summer vacations during high school, but after that, I just didn't come home. Yeah, I assume with the blessing of your family. My parents were not happy oh. to, to let me go at 12 years old, mm. but they felt, <laughs> you know, Catholics, they felt God was calling me. I felt God was calling me, and I believe that was the case. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, it was much too young to start. Anyway, I got started and things went well. Yeah. And when it came time to, for the last four years of my seminary training, they asked for volunteers of, of people who would want, would want to finish their studies in Rome. I was one of them. And, um, it, you know, they, they based on a lot of things. I, I, you know, I did fairly well in my studies. And so um, I was selected. The book that you've referenced, you know, Without Buddha, I Could Not Be a Christian. And so I feel like that is a question in and of itself. And so before we dive into ripping that apart, can I just say why? Like, it's a simple question, but I also think it's deeply a hard question to answer. Right. When I say without Buddha, I could not be a Christian. I am not saying that that should be the case for other Christians mm. in no way. That was just kind of a... You know, it's a little bit of a hype title. I, I mean, and the publisher liked the title. Mm -hmm. It makes um, people pick it up. What did he say? Yeah, right, right. You know, what the hell is this guy talking about? <laughs> but, but, but there's something to it, Seth. I, in, in dealing with trying to figure out what I believe as a Christian, trying to figure out who, is, who and what is God for me? How do I uh, uh, do I experience God? How do I understand God? My, it's questions that theologians grapple with, of course. What does it mean to say that Jesus is the Son of God? What does it mean to say that Jesus is the Savior of the world? Um, how, how do we live out, another question, how do we really live out our commitment to what Jesus called the kingdom of God, the reign of God? These were questions that I had trouble answering, mm -hmm. figuring out. You know, despite the you know the gift that I had of of studying theology, and as the more I then studied Buddhism and practiced Buddhism, I found that Buddhism was giving me insights, providing a kind of a little bit of a, if I may use it, like a, a flashlight, a, a, a Buddhist flashlight with which I could look at my Christian the doctrines and I could look at the Bible. Um, I could I could understand the books and the lectures from teachers of mine in Rome and then later in Germany with Karl Rahner, for instance, that that was Buddhism seemed to be kind of the, uh, you know, the, the, the glasses I was wearing hmm. um, by which enabled me to focus yeah. more clearly on what the Bible is saying and what the Christian doctrine is saying. We could get into particulars, but I mean, that's the general. And it's not to say, I mean, strictly speaking, I think I could have found such help elsewhere and Christians find such help elsewhere but for me in my particular situation I, I can't I can't imagine being a Christian going to the breaking bread at the Eucharist every Sunday praying in the morning reading the the the, 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 the New Testament the, the Bible with, without this 
this kind of this little Buddha on my shoulder, uh, giving me advice and opening up possibilities. Something like that, Seth. Yeah. I, I don't know if that's clear, but... No, um, it is. It is you, clear. You know well, what? Me, if I may just add this, Seth, mm-hmm. what I think I experienced is precisely what this, I think the Second Vatican Council and many other Christian theologians, Catholic and Protestant, are saying to, is the advantage of interreligious dialogue. Yeah. That studying and exploring in another religion is an opportunity given to us, I think, by God and by the Holy Spirit, by which we can understand our own self. Mm. You know, yeah. a, a, a mentor of mine, a theologian now, now dead, Raymond Panikar, and a good friend he was, once said, to answer the question, who is my God, I have to ask the question, who is your God? Mm. In other words, hearing from you about who is your God will help me understand who is my God. And we're talking about the same God, of course, but different understandings yeah. of God. Yeah, I like that. Do you feel like, this might be an unfair question, Paul, have Catholics, quote unquote, big, let's just say big C, Catholics, uh, not in general, do you feel like they've leaned into Vatican II of engaging into other faiths or that it was just lip service? Oh, no, no, no. I think I think that um, it, it, an openness to other religions and an eagerness and effort to engage other religions in conversation and in cooperation, I think that that is um, something that characterizes a, a, a significant percentage of, of Roman Catholics. Not that all of them are engaged, right. but this, this openness. Maybe I'm being too, uh, too optimistic here, because there are a lot of very, I don't know what word to use, more traditional uh, uh, Catholics, you know, as I was traditional, up to the up to the Second Vatican Council, and believing that not only was Christianity the only one true religion, but only the Catholic Church was the one true church, Christian mm-hmm. church. Mm-hmm. You know, but that, I think they're 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 moving beyond that. And I must say that the, the the Vatican itself, under Pope Paul VI, who was the the Pope after the Vatican Council, and and then again under John Paul II. Um, the Vatican itself has a special a special commission for the promotion of, of interreligious dialogue. Yeah. So it's it, both institutionally as well as more um, popularly or pastorally. I think um, openness to other religions is something that that is is growing. In chapter two, and I think that title. Well, you did three chapters on Nirvana and the concepts around those, and so I think from memory, well, I have the book in front of me, but I'm not going to cheat. Nirvana and the God. Nirvana and God, the personal other. Um, Two questions about other. Um, A, and this is the question that I emailed you as an example of one of the questions, but I have two questions. So um, I had crowdsourced some questions on Facebook, and and a friend of mine had said, um, and I want to make sure I ask him correctly, or I I quote him correctly, he wanted to know kind of why you think humanity needs, quote unquote, people groups to, to hate or to loathe. Like, where does that root stem from to distinctly classify people? as other. And then that kind of relates to the question that I sent you where, you know, there's a section in your book where you talk about anthropomorphism and that that problem especially comes to terms when we talk about evil. And then you say that, you know, uh, 
and then that that person of God, and then you say that there's a Buddhist friend that would say, well, what's the problem for us? There is no God, and so there's therefore no person, and there's no problem. And so I don't understand kind of, you know, how that has to do with the crux of everything, the anthropomorphism and how we classify other people as other. Yeah. It's a big <laughs> Those question. Those are pretty it's big, a, it's pretty a small big question. questions. It's a, <laughs> it's a tiny question. I, I don't know. They're, they're kind of, they're, they're, they're two, two distinct questions, so they're, they're related, of course. Mm-hmm. But maybe to start with, um, with anthropomorphisms and God, because mm-hmm. this is an area where, where Buddhism has helped me retrieve what I think is an, an important but often neglected part of our Christian tradition, namely the mystical tradition. But for Buddhism, you know, it's, it's wrong. To, it, it is not correct to say that Buddhism simply de- denies the existence of God and is therefore an atheistic religion. You hear that said sometimes. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is entirely in- inaccurate uh, and in- incorrect. B- Buddhists, Buddhists don't have an understanding of ultimate reality. Seth, I'm going to use that word for a moment. Rather than use the word God, mm-hmm. I'm going to use the word uh, the ult- ultimate reality, namely the source of our, our existence the sustainer of our existence, that which grounds everything. Buddhists don't talk about that reality in terms as a someone or a something. They're very reluctant to use such language of ultimate reality in in anthropomorphic language as saying God is a father or God is a he or God is a mother or or God is a creator. they, they for, for them, using such language runs the risk of diluting the mystery of ultimate reality. I would say the mystery of God. Mm-hmm. It, it forgets that God is a word w- which is really a pointer to something which is beyond all words. I mean, God is a mystery that none of us can ever understand. We can experience that that mystery, that reality, but we can never find adequate words for it. That's something that we Christians, especially we Catholics, have forgotten. Because mm-hmm. we take our words much too seriously. Catholics have a lot of dogmas, you know, unchangeable truths. Mm-hmm. So, Buddha, so Buddhists <sighs> stress, there, therefore, that, that hey, the reality that we're talking about is beyond words and is better it's better to simply leave it open and so they use they use words like the word for one word for for uh, ultimate reality for buddhism from is shunyata which means emptiness now that doesn't mean empty of a void it just means it's it's empty of all all identifiable existence um God is not a thing. God is a reality that is a source of being for everything. And when I read that, when I hear that from Buddhism, I go, that's what St. Thomas Aquinas was talking about, it seems to me. When I studied St. Thomas Aquinas in the seminary, you you know, the definition, definition, Mm -hmm. description of God that, that Aquinas gives is God is, in Latin, ipsum esse subsistence, being itself, existence itself. The being of all beings. Now that's kind of heady language, but so the Buddhists don't want to use language that's going to capture God. 
But what the Buddha is saying is that ultimate reality, or what you Christians call God, is something you can experience. Yeah. You can feel it. You can come to it. Then you say, well, how? And Buddha responds with, he calls it the Eightfold Path. He said, well, first of all, you got to get your moral life in order. If you are hurting other people uh, unnecessarily, no matter what prayers or meditation you use, it's not going to work. So get your moral life together and make sure you're not harming other people in your words, in your deeds, or in your profession. <laughs> right action, right speech, right profession. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, then, then Buddhism promotes, uh, uh, urges, insists on some form of meditative practice. Some form. Now, some, some schools of Buddhism stress this more than others. But all of them recognize the need for some kind of meditation by which, now, and Seth, this is a very inadequate description of meditation, <laughs> but, but it, it's some kind of practice, and it's not foreign to us Christians, but some kind of practice where you shut up. Mm -hmm. You just shut up. In other words, stop talking, stop thinking, and just let, let your thoughts go and and release yourself just be in the present moment and see what happens yeah and see what happens and i think that is it's being it's a kind of meditation is also practiced in different forms you know by 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 christian mystics and by the way seth i would have to add here as a footnote we Catholics um, have a lot more mystics than you Protestants, but um, uh, <laughs> I think that's why I fall we, more. We to... <laughs> I fall more and more in love with a lot of the Catholic writings. I think because of that. Recently, I mean, even in our email, you know, I'd say you know, I was trying something different during the season of Lent, and he was like, "What?" Yeah. And and what I find is my Protestant friends don't ask me what that new thing is because I honestly don't think that they know how to handle the answer. Uh, but any of my Catholic friends or people that are in that tradition, they're like, well, tell me what you're doing. Tell me how it's and impacting you. Said, you. And you said Lexio Divina. Yeah. Which, and that's a form of meditation. Yeah, I, I love it. I've been doing that, and I've been doing the examine, well, Lectio Divina for just Lent, but examine for almost a year now. Um, oh. Intentionally. And, and I'll be honest, sometimes, Paul, I fall asleep. Sometimes. Um, on bad days. Hey, that's but, okay. But usually I don't. <laughs> I've been needing somebody, some, somebody. I've been needing somebody, some, somebody. Thinking you can be the one. I'm gonna take something from my Protestantism um, that you hear preached every single Sunday. And so if if I if if God is something entirely bigger than any image that I well, every time we talk about God, we're talking about a metaphor always. Because exactly, and and I tell people Amen. often Amen. that's what the whole Bible is. It's the best words that I have to talk about something I have no way to describe, and then I'm gonna write it down. And some smart people, hope, hopefully, some smart people will condense it into something that can be passed down to you and me and my kids and their kids. So then, how do we come? I, I don't want to come off as arrogant or prideful, but I bear the image of God, quote unquote, like hyperbolically, like, sure, I hear you say that, Paul, but I bear the image of God, not my dog, yes. scripturally, not my dog. You know, you'll hear people say that. So how do I wrestle with that if I'm going to de-anthropomorphize something, but then also still say that I bear the image of the divine? Well, I mean, I, I think the, 
that's a profound, and it's right there in the opening chapters of our Bible, mm -hmm. in, the, in, the, in the Hebrew Bible. We are made in the image and likeness of God. Um, and, and now, so that's, that itself is a, a, a metaphor, right? It, it's, it's poetry. Mm -hmm. what, what is it getting at? Well, I, I think what we, Christians, but also Buddhists, especially Tibetan Buddhists, and and well, I won't get into all the different forms of Buddhism, but but they they recognize that what this ultimate reality is, the Buddhists say, is a is an interconnecting energy or power that pervades everything, that connects everything, so that no no thing, as no human being can exist by itself. We exist through this interconnected network of mutual giving and taking from each other. Another word for mutual giving or taking, love. Hmm. That's what love is. It's, lo it's when I give you my love and when I uh, receive love from you and I find that that is life-giving, both to give and to receive. So this, this inherent giving and taking this interconnecting, this love, which for us Christians, Seth, I see one of the one of the, the metaphors, one of the beautiful symbols that we use for that is spirit, the Holy Spirit, the all-pervading spirit. So to say that we are made in the image and likeness of God means that we are receptacles of and vehicles for this loving energy that is God's very being. Hmm. Insofar as, this is where insofar as a human being really cares for another human being or beings to the point that he or she is ready to, to, you know, to undergo hardships, maybe even give up their life for someone else, that human being, whether they call themselves an atheist or not, is for me living and expressing God's life. They may not identify it as that, that, that way because of all the, I think, strange, weird images of God that they have heard about. But from, for, from my perspective, that human being is living as an image and, and, and the likeness of God, insofar as he or she is giving and receiving caring, compassion, and love for others. I wrote this down, and I don't want this to come off as flippant. You talk a lot in your book about language and how language is entirely inadequate to talk about God. Um, and I'll use God in the same metaphorical way that we've been using it the whole yeah. way. And then you ask a question, and it's one that I underlined, and so I'll ask it to you. You see, you say, but here's the rub that we felt in all the earlier chapters, where we're talking about a definition of evil, we're talking about the sunyata, oh, yeah. we're talking about a bunch of other things. And then you say, how do we understand all of this traditional language? And by that, I mean, you know, original sin, and yep. grace, and salvation, and evil, yep. and yep. shoot, church. And then so you say, how do we understand all this traditional language about Jesus, but for our time? And so as a you know, as a, I'm, you know, I'm currently Baptist, so as a Baptist or as a Episcopalian or as a Catholic, how do I then break apart or treat well the relationship between language and Jesus, especially as I do this every single week and I want to do so well? Like, how do I, how do I nuance those? 
Yeah, well, and it's 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 an absolutely essential question for us Christians, whether whether you're a Catholic or a Baptist or or whatever, because we Christians understand Jesus of Nazareth as the incarnation of the Word of God. Mm-hmm. You know the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity. There are the the, the, the three the, the the three aspects of, of of divine nature, which we say Father, Word, and Spirit. Second, either son or word of spirit. So Jesus is the embodied word of God. So we got to take that seriously. And so this is where I kind of get back to this, Seth. While language is always inadequate, it is also necessary. Mm. Um, it's it, because we're human beings. We need we need something, you know, to 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 grab us, to 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 stimulate us, and those are words. Words like God is love. Words like God is creator. Words like God, like like God is is a divine word. Um, so this it it stimulates us and and it gets us it, it it opens up experiences. You see, the words invite us to experiences, and the experiences tell us that the words are are true, but inadequate. Because once you start to enter into the experience of, of God, the ultimate reality, you know that while, while words are important, none of them do the job fully and completely. Now, however, for us Christians, Jesus of Nazareth is a very special word of God. Mm-hmm. We believe that in this human being, this Jew, born some 2,000 years ago, we believe that there in this man, we encounter the reality of God in a very special, distinctive way. A way that once we, we relate to it and get in touch with it, can illumine and transform our lives. So in other words, for me, Jesus, the word of God embodied in Jesus of Nazareth, is true. I mean, for, from, based on my experience, I can say this is God's, truly this is God's word. But, now Seth, this, is, this gets to be the little more dicey part, if I may put it this way, because it, here it, it challenges traditional Christian thinking. But while I would say that Jesus is truly the word of God, I would not say, because of what I have learned from Jesus, that he is the only word of God. I do believe, both on the basis of what I hear in the Bible, but also, Seth, on the basis of what I have seen in in the world of other religions, Buddhism especially, but also in Islam and Hinduism, and of course Judaism, I see God's word in in other religions as well. Hmm. Very different words, Sometimes words that might be in tension with the word of God and Jesus, but ultimately I see them as complementary to each other, able to to enrich each other. So this, and this I think, Seth, is the challenge that we Christians, I think, are facing today. How to be fully committed to God's revelation in Jesus, to God's word in and through Jesus, and at the same time, to be open to what God might be speaking to us in other in other faiths. So for me, 
I love this expression. I think it's in the book somewhere. Um, and I'll shut up then so you can ask some questions. <laughs> um, but for me, one of the most beautiful descriptions of who Jesus is for us Christians is formulated by a friend of mine, a theologian, John Cobb. Jesus is the way that is open to other ways. Hmm. Jesus is the way, for me, the way that is open to other ways. I think that, that for me, kind of describes how Jesus has enriched my life, given me a grounding, an ability to experience a God of love and a God of justice, but at the same time called me to be open, critically open, not just, you know, empty-mindedly um, open, critically open, but genuinely open to other, to other ways, to other, other, other religions. Yeah. So what's funny is another question that I got is from someone you may know. Um, and I can tell you after the fact, I don't want to put them on blast on the show. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and so when I hear you talking and I get it often as well, I find that I'm not able to grow spiritually if I'm not skirting at some, not constant level, but at some intentionally repetitive level, uh, dogmas or doctrines that some would view heretical. And so when I hear you saying that, you know, there are, tr there are truths, big, big T truths and other faiths, and Christians shouldn't be so pie or so arrogant as to think that they have uh, the world locking key that, at least for the Protestant Bible, these few books, they've got it all. That Orthodox Bible is wrong because Maccabees, we all know, is not inspired. You know, I say that <laughs> hypothetically. I like Maccabees. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so what do you say when, you know, because if I talk to people here, you know, in Central Virginia, they're going to be like, Seth, like, you have gone off your rocker. Like... Jesus is pretty. You can't say Jesus that in is church. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Jesus is pretty clear. I'm the only one, and everyone else is wrong. And as you alluded to at the beginning, if you don't fit into this small little thimble of people, you're not making it because you're just you just don't understand why you don't understand. And so, how do I how do I both honor, learn from, but not degrade Christianity when I'm mixing in with other faiths? Because what you'll hear is people saying that, you know, well, you're lukewarm, or you're watering it down, or you're too wishy-washy, or you don't stand for anything, Seth. Like, you you kind of like Jesus, but you're having a love affair with all of these other religions, which I would argue, sure, maybe, maybe. I also have an issue with using lukewarm that way, but that's an entirely different podcast episode for Revelation. But what would you say to someone? Like, how do I, how do I, if I'm just asking you, like, how do I continue to skirt the edges of what someone view as heretical, although what I would call heresy, someone else would call doctrine, and what they would call heresy, I might would call doctrine. Luther was a heretic for the longest time until he wasn't, what, 12, 15 years ago? I think the Pope then yeah, rescinded right. it. So for mm -hmm. 500 years, roughly, he was a heretic. So how do I do that and do it well, but that way I can, and do it in such a way that I'm not judging the other faith, and I'm not also just leeching truths and then somehow making it my own, but not giving any humility or honor to the other portions of those faith. Right, right. And, and you know, it's, it's, um, it's tricky, but it's, 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 it's excitingly tricky. You know, it's, it's delightfully tricky, namely, how to be, how to be faithful to, G, to the witness of that we have and to the truth that we have in Jesus, um, and, 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 and then to be open to, to other religions without, as you just said, diluting or, 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 or watering down the truth in Jesus. Now, th that, th that, there's no easy answer to that. All that, all that I, I, I might say right now 
is that is that what um, there are truths that I have come to experience through Jesus that I cannot I, I, I cannot give up and I won't give up. And when I encounter another uh, another religion that contradicts that, I want to be open to well, what they're saying and why they're saying it and what the historical context is. But if in the end there is a contradiction, my my fidelity is is to Jesus, not because hey, I, I signed on the bottom line and I can't <laughs> renege. No, because I find His truth to be real. Yeah, to be living now. Now, but I must say, Seth, that most of these kind of contradictory differences between Christian views and views in other religions seem to be on the ethical level, not so much on the doctrinal level. You know, um, what, what, I, what I mean is that there are some Hindus, for instance, who would say that something like the caste system mm-hmm. is inherent to Hinduism. And that that's what Hinduism requires. And they will try to, you know, try to explain that to me in a way in which it doesn't seem so, so oppressive to others. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they, they've never succeeded in showing me how it's not oppressive. But on that issue, I say, sorry. Yeah. But no, I'm, there's, there's, there's no way. Now, let's take another contradiction, but this is more doctrinal, between Christianity and Islam, where Christianity says that we believe in one God who is also triune, that there are differences within God. Um, we, we talk about, we try to describe those differences, you know, as God is ground or father, God is revealer. You know, uh, 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 or, or or son, word, God is sanctifier, spirit, and the, and the Muslims say no, one God. Any any kind of talk of multiplicity in 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 in, in God is is wrong. Let's talk about that. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about that because I think there and I and I have engaged Hindu uh, uh, Muslims on this issue, and we have really found a great points of of agreement. You know where where we, I've been able to explain how we're still holding to the oneness of God, um, and they have explained that they they are open to recognize a certain multiplicity in God. Insofar as I'm just giving an example, they talk about the 99 names of God, the 99 names of God, which really talk about real differences in who God is. Well, Bingo! Yeah. We got we got we got some points for dialogue there. Yeah, you know we say three, you say ninety nine. Let's talk. Yeah, yeah. If you look at it that way or frame it that way, we only went with three. You went with ninety nine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. And then the then the Hindus come along and they say thirty three million. <laughs> yeah, which statistically thirty three million versus three. We might as well be. We might as well just be one. <laughs> um, uh, I want to. I want to end with two things. So. Uh, often, I don't talk about practice. And so for people, A, if you're listening, go buy the book. It is not expensive. I'll link to it in the show notes. 
And when you get to the chapter on Jesus, I think it's chapter five, Paul, I'll be real honest, I haven't made it past chapter five, which is why some of these topics are all about just the first portion of the book, because I've read that chapter six times, and I still wrestle with it. But I always laugh out loud at the Ronner um, quote, where you quote Ronner saying, most Christians think that Jesus is just God in a man suit, which is, I I literally burst out loud every time I read it. But (laughs) chapter five is really doing a number on me. Wow, thank you, thank you. Yeah, so I don't know what chapter six says. I hadn't gotten there yet, but because I I need to deal with this first. I just know the way my brain works. So what are some practices that those listening that may be of any walk of faith, or maybe they don't have faith at all, maybe they want to try something just to try to become a better person, what are some of those practices that you've gleaned from Buddhism that we could install either in our Sunday worship or in our prayer life at home? or in the way that we treat the other? Like, what are some concrete practices? And then kind of where are some resources to, at a topical level, kind of learn how to do this, and and if we're going to do it, at least try to do it uh, with intentionality? Yeah. Well, no, very, very, um, I think, helpful, fruitful question, Seth. On the level of 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 our churches, of our congregations, one of the things that I... Uh, talk about in the chapter on spirituality, I think the title is a, a Prayer and Meditation, is I think that we, we, we Christians, and I'll speak, I mean, I'm, I'm Roman Catholic, and so my, I, um, I'm more acquainted with Roman Catholic liturgy, although I taught at Union Theological Seminary and attended Protestant services every day mm-hmm. while I was there. But I think all of us, we're much too wordy. We make too much noise during, excuse me, putting it that way, during our services, whether it's singing or preaching or reading. And oh, listen, singing, preaching, reading is essential. We need more time for silence. Mm. Together, silence together in, in our services. I talk about it in the book as, as you, you, you Protestants need another sacrament. We Catholics need another sacrament. For you Protestants, it'll be number three. For us Catholics, it'll be number eight. But but it'll be it'll be the sacrament of silence. And I really think silence is a sacrament. I mean, just as sacraments mean these are our external actions, pouring water, uh, cons- breaking bread, um, by which we come to experience the presence of the divine. Silence is a practice by which we can experience the presence of the divine. So that would be a recommendation that, um, and I've seen some some Christian services in India and in Sri Lanka by by, um, Catholic friends of mine, where the Catholic Eucharist embodies Buddhist and Hindu silence right into the, the time. And it's just, it's, Seth, it's powerful. Yeah. It's powerful. Yeah, and 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 aligned, another pr- suggestion. This is more on the individual, uh, on the individual um, level of, and that would be. And and there's a lot of talk about this nowadays, and so I'm not saying anything that's terribly um, strange or new, but the, the way the Buddhists stress the importance of mindfulness, mindfulness. And by that you mean what? Well, first of all. This is, this is a Buddhist act of faith. Buddhists tell us that if we are truly present 
to each individual moment of our lives, truly present, truly open to it, and we will find all that we need to deal with whatever we have to deal with. If we are truly present to the moment, Seth, for, my, for me as a Christian, they're talking about God's grace always available. <laughs> God's grace. Now, but they would say, in order to get in touch with it, this is mindfulness, just stop. Recognize your thinking. Recognize the feelings that you have. And don't let the think the thought think you, and don't let the feeling possess you. But you be aware of your thought and let it go. Be aware of their feeling, whether it's anger, whether it's despondency, whether it's discouragement. Recognize it, let it go, and just be open to the moment. Mm. There yeah. is power in the moment. God is always, excuse me, I'll use a Christian term, God or God's grace is always present right now. The problem is we're not present right now. Yeah. And that's what mindfulness is, is enabling us to be present, to trust, to trust that right in this moment, no matter what, there is that which is holding me and sustaining me. Yeah. I wonder if, I wonder if mindfulness has become so more talked about and that's a bad sentence but we'll we'll let no, it you're we'll right. let it you're fly. Right. I think you're right. Be, yeah. Because I mean, just even if I think back and I'm not that old, but growing up if I wanted to be distracted, I had to plan to be distracted. I had to make plans to be with my friends or make plans to read a book or make plans to watch a movie. Cuz shoot, just dating myself a bit, it was expensive to get a VHS player, much less a VHS, <laughs> and cable wasn't a thing, at least not where I'm from. I had a UHF VHF Zenith that you had to tick 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 the things on. But now I can easily without even trying be distracted. And so I don't think that as a generation, at least not mine, which is now the biggest generation on the planet, not just in this country, all of them, we don't know how to not be distracted. We operate at a level of always doing four things at once. And I, I would argue yeah. we're uncomfortable with not having constant input, but we don't listen to, at least me, I often don't listen to any of the input. And I know I would tell you at work, I don't work well if there's too much silence. Like I need two to three inputs that I can filter subconsciously to focus on the one that matters. Uh, and so like when I do contemplative prayer or lecture to or something, it's really hard because I'm not, I'm still not comfortable with silence. I know one of the things our current minister had installed when he first came is a discipline of silence at the end of each service. And oh, each, week he's, each week he's stretched it out a little further. Uh, and obviously there's some of that worked in. Sometimes it's shorter if we have to dedicate a baby or, you know, that type sure, of stuff. Sure. But I can tell you so many people in the hallways that say that that is their most holiest part of the service now. Like wow. they look forward wow. to sitting here. Look at that. So, yeah. Um, and that's just three years later, two years later, but it was wholly new. And I remember him prefacing saying, this is going to be uncomfortable, but go with me. And it's going to be uncomfortable. Uh, but because I'm helping lead worship at the church service, I, I don't really get to partake in that because that's when I have to get up, get ready to go back on the stage and do <laughs> yeah, the music. Yeah. So uh, for me, I have to do it at home. But I, I don't think that my generation even knows how to be silent. And I don't, I don't know that we will without expressly intending to do so. Yep. Uh, but but yep. to do so then makes the rest of the world feel like there's something wrong with us. Like, why did they disengage? Did I offend them? Did I do this? Did I not check my... Uh, you know? Well, I, I just would... You know, this that's on the congregational level so important. But on the individual level, just 
encourage people, your, your, your listeners, our listeners, um, you know, just to experiment with five to 10 minutes in the morning, if, prep, if, if possible, in the morning where you just sit maybe with a cup, cup of coffee in silence mm. and try just to, to observe your thoughts and let them go and just sit. And if, if you know, I'm talking to Christians now, just sit in the divine presence. Mm. Just just sit in the present. Don't try to think about it or understand it. Just just sit in the in, in divine presence. Yeah. Um, there, the, a form of Christian practice is called centering prayer. Mm. I don't know if you've, but centering prayer can be a wonderful Christian way of, of doing this kind of of meditation. Perfect. Um, I would really really urge it. Um, a resource. We talked about some resources. Yeah. Check out some of the. Writings on Centering Prayer by Thomas Keating, who died recently, and C- Cynthia Bourgeau um, um, can be very, very helpful, I think. Absolutely. Well, Paul, I've got to end our time because we both have sure. we both have other commitments. So thank you. It is, on, honestly, it was a privilege to talk with you. I really enjoyed it. Oh, it was a delight. Thank and you. I'm really enjoying wrestling with the book, even though I'm, I usually try to finish these books before I talk to someone, but I I have to be genuine, and I can't get past chapter five. Oddly enough, when you <laughs> talked about prayer and meditation as a possible response to my question when I said that, yeah. that's chapter six. I went to the table of contents, and so yeah. maybe that's my impatientness bleeding through. But Skip chapter five. Skip chapter five and come, jump to chapter and come, six. And come back to it. Yeah. Um, the uh, So where would you point people to either in, engage with you, to get in touch with you? Obviously, I'll have links to everything to you in the show notes, but where would you direct people to? Well, I mean, I guess the easiest way would be uh, just, you know, through email, uh, mm-hmm. Seth, would be, I really don't keep up on a, on a I don't have a website. Mm-hmm. I should, but I don't. Um, but should there be questions or so? I mean, uh, I, I'm, I'd be glad to, to, as much as time allows to carry on further conversations that way. What's that mm-hmm. email address, if you're willing to put that, it on the That email. would be uh, just the, the simple, uh, to remember, is paul at paulnitter.com. Mm-hmm. Paul at paulmitter.com. Fantastic. Well, thank you again. Genuinely have enjoyed it. Honestly, though, we could probably talk for hours. I didn't cover half of the things that I wanted to ask you about, but that's okay. Um, that's <laughs> entirely okay. But thank you again. I'd love to, if time allows, sometime in the future, I'd love to have you back on. Maybe Certainly. we can talk on some of those when other you, things. When you finish the book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair enough. So many questions, so many whys. Like we've been here so many times Learning to trust you You know that I'm trying Man, Religion and faith is an adventure It's a call to new things It's a call to stretch ourselves And to learn what is true To learn things that make us more whole Paul's book does that I wanted to leave you with this May your search for peace and knowledge and compassion and an understanding of faith leave you with wisdom and radiating warmth as you're held by our creator, by the divine God, by love. The music today featured is from artist Ryan Ellis. You'll find links to him in the show notes and you'll find today's tracks listed below as well in the show notes on the Spotify playlist for Can I Say This at Church. I'll speak with you all next time. Be blessed, everyone.
imaginary valley I know that you're there I'm learning to trust you You know that I'm trying Cause I'm not perfect But the righteous live by faith And I can't see a thing What is life?